Hello and welcome back to a new series of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where well-known people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And today's guest is a man who started out as a barrister, but later became a household name as a TV personality. He is famous for his trademark forthrightness and no-nonsense approach. And despite being on our screens now for only five years, he has made an enormous impact in what is a relatively short period of time. It is, of course, Robert Rinder, or otherwise known as Judge Rinder. Robert achieved a first-class honours degree in politics and modern history from the University of Manchester and was called to the bar at the tender age of 21. His TV career, which followed, has come about entirely by accident. Robert was writing crime drama scripts as a side hustle when a fortuitous meeting with an ITV executive led to him being cast as the judge on the UK version of the hit American series, Judge Judy. Needless to say, this turned out to be an inspired decision. Judge Rinder has become an enormous success since his debut and often averages one million viewers, which for a daytime TV show is pretty incredible. He wowed us on Strictly in 2016 when he finished fifth and his episode of Who Do You Think You Are for the Beeb was watched by 8 million people, making it the highest rated of the series. His writing CV includes being a columnist for The Sun and The Evening Standard and he has also released a book entitled Rinder's Rules. During the interview we chatted about where his incredible confidence comes from, his teenage crushes, who are all Scandinavian, by the way, uh, what it's like to be gay and Jewish, dealing with homophobia within the legal profession, why he has changed his mind about same-sex dancing partners on Strictly, and his advice for those who are currently in the midst of the coming out process. In spite of his incredible intellect and his many accomplishments, Robert was so lovely and humble, and I was so impressed by him and delighted that I got to interview him for the podcast. Please leave a rating, review and subscribe as it really helps me and helps other people to discover the podcast. I really love doing it and I'm not a media name or any kind of a name really for that matter. So any help at all would be very much appreciated. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening and here it is. Hello Robert, welcome to my podcast and thanks for being here. Thank you for asking me. This is lovely. It is actually quite a, a nice setup. I didn't want to invite you to my sister's apartment. It's the first time <laughs> I've met you, so I thought that could be a bit strange. Why was it sort of a, a, a bit like FBI burgled cheek? Well, no, just because it's the first time meeting you. It's like, uh, come to my home. You well, know. What's been wrong with that? I'd have come, I'm sure. I mean... Although no, this I, is dead posh, we are in central London. Is, well, I didn't want to book a recording studio in maybe Edgware, and then it was like a 10, 15 minute walk from the tube station. So I thought I need to get somewhere central. So. Well, now, you know, I've, uh, you know, I'm in the public eye, I'm like Mariah Carey, you know, puppies and riders. <laughs> so I would have insisted on a room that had painting for all and Gertrude Stein like this does. That's what I thought. I can't bring an A-lister out to the, the middle of nowhere or a TV star. Yeah. So I have to get somewhere good. You got me. I'm not, not sure I'm, I'm, I'm there in the uh, celebrity, you know, spaghetti soup. <laughs> it's very kind of you to say so. So I'm going to start by asking you about your on-screen persona, because watching you on TV over the years, I've always been struck by your remarkable confidence. You just seem like someone who is incredibly poised and self-assured at all times. So are you like that all the time? And where do you think that confidence came from? That's a really thoughtful question. It's a complex one. You know, just like you. Um, you know, you're not one thing. People conscript other people, certainly people they don't know, to, if they're in the public eye, they assume that they're like that all the time. 
And, you know, there are a number of different me's, just as there are a number of different all of us is. That's a, that's a way of describing it. In my case, you know, um, in my professional context as Judge Rinder, I am exactly the same on television as I was with all of my clients. You know, the, the reality is, you know, and especially in law, an ounce of mistruth or nonsense or bullshit is worth a bucket load of horse manure. But in terms of my persona, no, I am exactly the same in a professional context. I think I'm slightly different as a friend. So in your personal life, a mm. bit more subdued, a bit more relaxed? Oh, God, no. No, 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 nothing like that. No, I mean, I... <laughs> You know, it's not always the case that uh, truth is more important than kindness. But um, I'm, you know, I'm definitely somebody like that tells it like it is. Always being mindful of the situation and, and trying always to be kind. One thing I'm very sure about is I'm totally disinterested. I give my undivided indifference to whatever anybody says about me on Twitter or social media. I mean, sometimes I find it hilarious, especially if they can't spell things. You know, I've never minded even about homophobic abuse that I've received. And have you received a lot of homophobic trolling on there? Sort of. I mean, it's always so silly and unimaginative. Um, But it doesn't touch me personally. And I can, I don't make a broader point for other people who it genuinely does affect. And were you quite confident as a child as well, as a young boy? It's really interesting. Again, it's really hard because, you know, I have uh, a perception of my childhood, which I'm sure is uh, my own created narrative. It's not at all true, you know. You know, I tell stories about myself, as one often does, where I'm always a sort of hero figure. <laughs> I mean, it's certainly true for me that I, I knew or had a sense of awareness I was gay from a very young age. And I grew up in a, a working-class community, a very respectable working-class community. Why people say respectable working-class communities if other working-class communities somehow lack respectability? But it's just where I grew up. Uh, my dad was a black taxi driver. It was a quite... Jewish community, although quite racially diverse, um, where the big thing was class. Much more, the most important intersection where I grew up in Southgate, you know, down the road from Amy Winehouse and around the corner from Rachel Stevens. And we were very aware of our Jewish identity, but it was sort of not stifling as much as there were kind of a series of rather limited expectations. Certainly, education was very important, but there was no uh, uh, books or music beyond a certain genre and stuff and so as early as I can remember I probably started cultivating this personality to some extent doing things which were outside of the immediate social ordinary you know gymnastics and horse riding and uh, by the time I was 14 reading poetry and that sort of thing and I guess becoming uh, a sort of creation to some extent but that being said I'm still friends with all of those people that's something to really be proud of, isn't it? Friends with all the people you grew up with. Well, I don't trust. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, not all of the people. I mean, I'm yeah. like, I, I have two primary school friends. So Rachel Stevens and I, who was in S Club, and Nikki Glazer, twice a year. We've known each other since we were babies. Well, there's a lot of talent in that area. Well, so, so, I did something unusual in the water at Southgate. <laughs> but I was going to come out to those friends. We, we go away twice a year. Yeah. Of course, we know everything about each other. I'm always dubious around people. Um, I think you can tell a lot by what people's immediate milieu are like, what their best friends are like, how, they, how they've how they cultivated good quality, deep relationships. And like I say, it makes me nervous to be, not quite nervous, it, it, I think it's always um, a, a perhaps dubious indicator of somebody if they don't have friends going back a long way. Okay. If they're <laughs> able to jettison people as they go through life. Sometimes, of course, that can be necessary for your emotional health. And as 
a young boy, when did you first become aware of what it meant to be gay? Such a tough one, isn't it? I say, isn't it? That might not be your experience. There probably might not have been that a definitive moment. It was maybe yeah. something in the background. Or... Well, I've written, I mean, obviously a series of moments. So one moment would have been, you know, I think it's 1984 when the Eurovision Song Contest was held. Was it in, no, it wasn't in Sweden that year, but um, Heres came out, Digaloo Digalay. It's the best Eurovision song ever. And there they were, these three blonde bombshells of perfection with golden boots. And I definitely remember having a kind of frisson at that moment and realising, or perhaps having an intuitive sense there was something different going on. You know, as early as, early as, uh, as that, I, I suspect I was kind of quietly cognizant of feeling something different. And then as I kind of grew up um, being partially aware of it, but also, you know, I, we grew up in a heteronormative world. Yeah. So important. I find that really hard to share with amazing young people now who um, grow up with certainly their own complexities in a world which of social media, which has, you know, a whole range of challenges for young people. But my lived experience back then, of course, was growing up against a backdrop where to be gay was to be disappeared or for it to be dangerous. Mm. So there were no normal interactions. You know, I've written a lot about this, um, normal sexual interactions. And I use the word normal in an important way. I come to explain it in a second where, you know, on Grange Hill, on children's telly, even on, you know, mainstream things like um, on soap operas, a gay kiss would be a matter of national scandal, right? Barry and Colin from EastEnders. Yeah. And in the end, ultimately, they'd be punished in some way, either by some species of incurable disease or they'd end up, you know, in some form of irrevocable depression. You know, there was a kiss on Dynasty, I remember watching and feeling this sort of, as I say, quiet, physical, parasexual frisson of excitement about it. And knowing, of course, there was something that I identified with, but it was never normalised. And you forget about that, what that means, because, you know, even pre-Watershed and soap operas, every facet, every fabric of the ordinary social culture, if you're straight, reflects back at you. Girls and boys holding hands, that sort of thing. So you feel OK about it. You know, it, it's helpful to frame an identity yeah. where you feel normal and okay. And of course, growing up where that didn't exist meant that you were quietly cloaked in a degree of shame. So I think I, I, I went into the closet because of that. And also because, you know, I really liked girls, not in any kind of meaningful sexual way. I just enjoyed their company. You know, growing up where I did, especially where football and m masculinity back then didn't yet, and it still has a problem, didn't include being emotionally literate and stuff. I found my home amongst girlfriends because um, I found it easier to talk to. They were more readily emotionally available. So to that extent, I thought, great, I really want to be straight. So I tried really hard and had girlfriends and that sort of thing. And was um, that during secondary school or university? Yeah, through second, well, through secondary school. I mean, I went to a boys' school. You know, I had a, a, a girlfriend sort of in secondary school, I think... Um, Blousy Brown to my Bugsy Malone when yeah. I was doing acting in school. But I was probably, in fact, I know I was probably snogging a boy at the same time. Um, he knows who he is. Um, and, um, and then into university, took it right the way through. And I had a girlfriend when I was 16. And I loved her very much and you know, desperately wanted to be, inverted commas, normal. And it's such a short period of time ago, but it's, it's hard to overstate how challenging that was 
So this was in the 90s. 90s, right. Yeah. right. And then, of course, Queer, Queer as Folk happened. So that was like right at the end, wasn't it? Right. 98, 99. Right. So I was finishing university when that took place. I remember thinking how radical it was. And in year two of university, I'd broken up with my girlfriend. It was the last meaningful girlfriend I'd ever had. I ended up snogging a boy. And um, it felt completely right. And then I spent the next year or so really thinking about it, never feeling terrified or anything of that sort. And then I came out to my mum when I was 21, just finishing bar school. Okay, so during those years in university. I know, what wasted years. I could have had so much fun. I mean, I went to gay clubs and I probably had a couple of snogs. But I had the best time at university, except that. Um, But it's also important to remember, you know, different times. Yeah, there has been a seismic shift in two decades. Right, but also it wasn't just, first of all, it wasn't just that gay marriage didn't exist or the possibility... Of gay marriage. The attitudes were completely different and there was sure. very little res- representation compared to today. Right. And how important that is. But also, you know, it was coming out of a time where um, HIV AIDS was very present and not uh, full life expectancy as it is now with diagnosis and antiretroviral. And so in that time, for parents and stuff, it represented another layer of ter- terror and danger. Do yeah. you see? Um, and f- during the 80s, some appalling things in appalling ways in which gay men especially, I think, were, were represented. Yeah, because I'm just reading about that now in mm. books and I'm reading, I'm seeing the tabloid headlines from the 80s and they're really, really right. shocking. And you you mentioned there about the gay couple on EastEnders because mm. that was met with a huge furore at the time. It was right. very, very controversial. Just think about that, right? Yeah. But you, it's it's so challenging. And if you're not gay, just just think about that. Even in... in, in, in Basic children's literature, from the famous five to beyond, that whole idea, the whole um, presence of normalcy, of the heterosexual norm, exists everywhere, permeates into every kind of facet of what it means to be okay and good and normal, using that word. When that doesn't exist or isn't present at all growing up, as you say, well, as I say, it, it, it inevitably creates a degree of, well, it makes you feel furtive in some way and I certainly did yeah I think I'm only really starting to appreciate now how a huge part of your development is missing in that you're not seeing any of your experiences or you're not seeing a large part of who you are being reflected back to you your who you are isn't being mirrored and it's only now that it's really hitting me how huge that is and how different your experiences are to your you know your heterosexual counterparts or worse still when they are reflected back at you yeah. and they're reflected back in a negative and dangerous way yeah and where homophobia uh, is reinforced in those programs or in literature or in newspapers and stuff that's why it's so dangerous and how aware were you of that time the how the media were handling gay issues and were you aware of what was in 1988 Margaret Thatcher No I was I was far too young then well, that's I mean, good uh, uh, to uh, you know I, I I was too young then to be kind of politically active but undoubtedly you know you pick things up as a young person hmm. as a child um and I was actually quite a political geek in those years as I as I still am and I would have been definitely aware of the discussions taking place around it. I would have watched, certainly, Margaret Thatcher's conference speech where she said people walk around thinking that they have an inalienable right to yeah. be gay. Think about that for a second. So um, That's and, the famous quote. Right. It sounds so familiar when I hear it. And 
going mm. back now, when you were at school, did you experience homophobic bullying? It's a really hard one for me. I was so different. Probably. I know, I think bullying was a kind of... I went to a boys' school where I was... I mean, it was... I found... I found look, I didn't suit the condition of childhood at all. I've talked about this before. I mean, I found the whole thing kind of pointless. You know, were you really precocious? Yeah, probably. It was awful, probably, to teach. I just sort of... I just found being a child so boring. And, you know, I... I it sounds terribly arrogant, but I always felt much more emotionally literate, not necessarily intellectually, certainly not intellectually literate than the teachers. I just thought being a child was shit. God, it was awful. So probably not bullying. I think I did on one occasion. It wasn't, wasn't, wasn't homophobia of any description. But I just always have been sort of aware that where, and I took this through to my professional life, where, you know, anybody has room for cruelty residual emotional energy capital however you want to describe it that I was always imbued with a sort of strong sense that it was always always about them I I mean my best friend at school was a kind of school nurse and in fact she showed up at Strictly uh, um, she became a teacher after Mrs Cornish and I'd bunk off you know and she and I would talk about her husband and <laughs> have a strepsil and you know she was my my safe space so to speak yeah so I wouldn't have minded if somebody had said something Actually, even at the boys' school, I don't think homophobia was as much of a thing because the whole identity, excuse me, the whole issue around gay identity wasn't even discussed, wasn't even right. present. And as I say, I mean, I was certainly snogging a boy called Ben at that point. And was he in the same school as you? Yeah. And you both kept it quiet? Yeah. Oh. And yeah. was this like behind the bicycle sheds or? No, in each other's houses. And that okay. sort of thing. But of course, at that point, what you have, as I, I, I wrote about it this week in a column I did... Um, you know, there's always those kind of post-ejaculative guilt moment of, oh, my God, you know, yeah. the announcement of that was experimentation. You know, in other words, the sex was always cloaked in crushing shame. OK. It's hugely important, that, that crushing sense of, of shame, of, of uh, dirtiness, furtiveness and wrongness. And that's still there for a lot of gay people, sure. very much so. So did you have a, a moment of clarity about being gay? What helped you uh, to make sense of it at all? Was it from dating um, women or...? No, that's a really good question. I don't think I've ever spoken about it. I think, I think when I was 21, I fell in love. And that was the moment, you know. And I thought, well, I didn't want to come out to my parents until I think I had a boyfriend. Part number of reasons about that. My mum, I mean, by my parents. I, partly because I felt perhaps, you know, you always worry about your parents' feelings. It would have made her feel somehow more safe. And you worry about her concerns and her worries. I think a lot of gay people do that. Yeah. You know, they project worries. And they also underestimate parents a lot of the time as well. And they over, sometimes, over-catastrophize the response. Or make, like I say, assumptions about um, how a, a parent will react. In my case, I wanted to feel like I was in love. And I was at that point. It wasn't reciprocated, I might add. Um, oh, an unrequited one. Oh, well, We've all been there. Of course we have, yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, and I then went to my mum's office and told her. Yeah. And, and I think it took that. It took that. It took me being, thinking, right, okay. I wanted to be in a relationship. But I, you know, you always knew. And by the end of it, you know, I felt like I was being um, dishonest to 
who I was. It wasn't causing me any particular pain as such. It just felt that if I carried on going down that path, I'd end up making really damaging choices for myself and for other people if I tried to carry off a heterosexual relationship. And your mother responded positively? Yeah, she really did. I mean... Was she surprised? Did she say no. she knew or...? Well, no. I mean, look, there's been a number there's a number of responses. Um, yeah. In my mum's case, I mean, she's an extraordinary person, you know, and I think that about her objectively if she wasn't my mum. You know, my dad's a black taxi driver. We grew up uh, in a community which was, as I say, parochial. Sounds like I'm criticising it, but it has it had kind of wealth, emotional wealth and richness about it and delight, to be sure. But when my parents got divorced when I was very tiny, you know, my mum went from being a kind of, it's a lovely Yiddish phrase, a shtetlfrau, a small kind of town person shopped at her local shop. And she went back and studied, and my grandma lived around the corner, and my aunt lived around the corner. It was very much that very close community. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, like, what, again, yet more privilege, right? And um, she became a financial advisor, and eventually she ended up running this publishing house. Wow. And becoming very, very successful. I mean, she started this business in our house, small house, with one person, her and somebody else, selling advertising space for a newspaper that only just sort of set up from her bedroom. Right? It must be really inspiring to have someone Hugely like that. Hugely inspiring, mother. right? Hugely inspiring. And of course, she grew emotionally and um, psychologically and culturally throughout her life. And I don't think she'd be in the least bit um, troubled about me sharing the fact she also had enormous kind of therapy and this explosion of reading and stuff. The best sort, the stuff that isn't necessarily wholly introspective, but delights in growing in the world. And so she started this company. Of course, she then became exposed to and in community employing gay men, gay women. And so that was such a gift for me because by the time I came out... She'd had those experiences. She knew what it looked like. Do you see? It wasn't just that narrative of horror, of terror, of death, of controversy and of shame that it would have been had she perhaps not uh, gone on that journey herself. You know, I think um, if we'd stayed where we were, she wouldn't... I think it might have been much more difficult and challenging... Well, difficult and challenging for her to come to terms with that being said, I mean, I went in and, and she definitely had the kind of 24 hours of bonkers, as I say, which I then punished her for for the next year, of course, you know. It's very important, you know, we, we have to be mindful always about, I think, our parents and what they want from us and what they want. It's complex, it's difficult. They want us to be safe and happy, right? And I think for my mum, the first 24 hours, what she needed to do was... I use this word in a way which I think might could get confused, but I'm going to use it anyway. Grieve the narrative that she'd yeah. told herself for me. And that is a real grieving. I mean, grandchildren, which back in the then, this is now, what, 20-something years ago, there was hardly any gay adoption. Very unlikely back then. Very unlikely, right? And a normal relationship, and it was infused with all of this other negativity which we've talked about. And I think she needed this 24 hours to go, you know, oh, shit, what does this mean? And then, then, I mean, she was just nothing but supportive and aggravatingly open and, you know, uh, delighted when I ended up, you know, in a a very serious long-term relationship and stuff. I mean, that's the most appalling thing about my mum. She's deprived me of any kind of 
anything interesting to say in an autobiography. You want a little bit of kind of, you know, misery and, you know, emotional torture. Otherwise, what have I got? I said this, you know, when I announced to her that sadly my husband and I were breaking up, you know, and I went round to see her and I was sort of troubled and worried about the conversation. She, she sat there, looked at me and said, no, before we continue, I need to know how I can be mindful in this conversation. I said, oh, for Pete's sake, just throw, throw something. I want a bit of drama. She sounds like the polar opposite of my mother. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Don't worry. You won't be writing any sort of mommy dearest type books anytime soon. No. You've just got the perfect mother. Well, perfect is a difficult word. And I think she'd be really troubled by that. I think she's like all of us. She makes mistakes, but she tries to be mindful. I mean, you know, she gave a speech at my wedding and we're sort of delighted by the whole thing. But again, I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, she'd met me. It wasn't a surprise. Right. It wasn't a surprise to anyone. And the delightful responses. I mean, my brother was gave it his absolute... He's who is the diametric opposite to me, you know. Football and communicates through the medium of Neolithic grunt. And I love him very Proper much. Proper bloke. Proper bloke. Yeah. And we've become much closer as we've got older. We had just absolutely no shared interest whatsoever growing up. I mean, you know, he used to... I mean, he's a very, very serious athlete, footballer and... You know, I got into the rugby team at school on the first day by virtue of, well, I suppose, genetic virtue. Couldn't catch a ball if it had glue in it. <laughs> Neither That's can I. Absolute disaster. Butterfingers. Well, but just the worst. I mean, it didn't stay for very, but very long. But as we've got older, we've become much close. You know, he's got two children now. Because you understand one another better. We just have grown-up experiences which are more shared. Yeah. And, um, I mean, he just gave me his absolute sort of undivided indifference. It's like, mm, right. Couldn't care less, as long as I was okay. And my dad, my, my biological father, um, said, oh, I thought you were bisexual, and then carried on eating. Okay. You know, again, I mean, but what a gift. You know, my aunts, my uncles, my friends, everyone, without exception, without single exception. Just, you know, and, and, and again... Because it can be, obviously, incredibly traumatising when people do come out and they are right. faced with rejection. Mm, of course, that's... it's. So, so you know, you, you invited me to come and, I suppose, have this conversation today. And before I sit down, the thing I always have to signal for the world is to, to, to you and to anybody listening is to know, to deeply know how privileged my coming out experience was. And the more I hear and the more I learn, the more I experience sitting as a judge or going perhaps to the um, various LGBTQ plus events, just how different my experience is are and were from other people today. There are so many harrowing stories out there. Really, really terrifying ones. Mm. And so had you come out to any friends before you came out to your family? Or did you do that afterwards? Sort of like a slow process. It wasn't, you know, I mean, I I, I think my flatmates, again, who I'm still really friendly with, um, would have known because, you know, I was shagging a boy in my bedroom, you know. So they would have been aware, (laughs) you know. um, And so they would have known. And then I think I first came out to an aunt. Again, you know, met with sort of delight. And... Then, you know, obviously I had to then come out to my um, my mum and I did and I chose to do that. The people I was worried about were my grandparents, still alive. I mean, what a gift. I'm, I'm in my 40s. I'm actually 28 plus that. Okay, that's what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I've got three grandparents still alive in their 90s, right? That's incredible. Isn't that extraordinary? And my dad's parents are still alive. And they were, again... Really accepting. I mean, my grandmother, who's an extraordinary person, I mean, she didn't exist 
you 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 couldn't write her. She she makes um, anybody that knows uh, Maureen Lippmann as BT as the kind of Jewish archetype in those adverts. She makes her look like a Carmelite nun. I love her. Right. She's as uber mega Jewish as you could possibly get. And before my my wedding, you know, she couldn't come, but she wrote to me and spoke to me and just wished me, as we would say, such muzzle top. And she was furious that he hadn't come round to the house. I mean, she's quite a difficult person, so I understood why my ex-husband wouldn't want to go around there. She's (laughs) like, well, why hasn't he been round? He's my son-in-law too. That's like a really happy ending to your coming out process, isn't it? You've got right. some really lovely stories to share there, sure. don't you? Sure, and I think it's important for us to share those. I mean, there are never to the detriment of ignoring, as you described, so much of the trauma and the toxicity and sometimes, frankly, the horror that exists around coming out and the you know the consequences. But I also think as an LGBTQ plus community, it's important for us to share these positive stories and how much it's got better. And and, and that's important, especially to young people, to remind um, young LGBTQ people that there are positive stories out there, that even where you might be rejected by perhaps a family member, there'll be another family member who won't. There's friends and community out there. And whilst you were in the closet during your adolescence, who did you fancy? This is my favourite question, <gasps> by the way. Wow. Oh, good, good question. Right. Oh, God, in the closet, who did I fancy? Well, I used to collect Panini football sticks, and my brothers used to collect them because he was a mad football fan, still is, and used to collect them and put them in order of the teams, but I used to put them in order of attractiveness. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I had loads. You know the swapsies? I never, okay. So I used to love... He, he, age hasn't been kind. Sorry, love, but it hasn't. I used to, they used to have a, a Danish player called Jan Molby. Loved Jan Molby. Who else? I used to love uh, Jeff from Dynasty, hot. Those are the two that really stick out when I was really little. As I say, Heres, who was a 1984. I'm going to have to Google these people. And if you must listen to it in Swedish, it's very <laughs> That was a free song. I can't think of anyone. Aha, Morgan Hockey. He's still hot. Still got it. These a lot of these are Scandinavian men, aren't they? I know, and I always I wrote a piece about Scandinavian men. I mean, poor darlings. It's one of those things you always sort of you have to be very careful about what you purchase in a man, you know, because you know it's all very fine when they have the sort of bloom of spring and summer, but as the winter sets in, you know, the roof falls off and things can deteriorate. And actually, in a heart, in Morgan Hoggett's case, he stayed hot, but life hasn't been kind or gravity to poor darlings that were in Heres in 1984. They they don't look as they did back then. Oh, it's um, 35 years ago now. So. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we won't mention that. I can't think of... Who, who else did I find? So footballers and Scandinavian men then. Yeah, back then. I well, I'm just trying to think of anybody else that was particularly... I mean, I certainly know now who I... Well, you can uh, answer that as well. Oh, well, I've written about it. I mean, you know, um, I was on a... F- the problem is I've got no chat. I've got no small talk or very little, you know, and I, if I fancy someone, I have no capacity to do that because of the absence of... Well, because I don't do small talk, I don't want to say. So I go bonkers. I mean, friends will often pull me away before I speak to somebody on the basis that it is going to be a car crash. You know, I, I just don't do... Oh, well. I think I read about this. I what, with Andrew Scott? Yes. Oh, yeah, that was a disaster. I mean, I know him. I you know my friend... You know, the, you know so it's, I, I'm never impressed by famous people because yeah. some of my friends became mega famous. You know, Benedict, I went to university with, is, you know, a superstar and all that But I was the first person to have a house, so all of these people <laughs> lived in my basement at some point before they were the... with dyed hair before they were the sexiest people in the world, you know. And, of course, these 
and I was in National Youth Theatre, there was people in my orbit. So that they're the most famous people. Irrelevant. I've just when I fancy someone, I I I become bonkers. Completely so, tongue tied. Tongue tied. Mumble at them. Not so much. It's more bonkers than that. It's more. You know, it's more sort of sort of emotionally dyspraxic. You know, I, I, I God, there are countless examples. I mean, in his case, I we had a perfectly reasonable chat. We, I, we were at the BAFTAs, and the Who Do You Think You Are? I did just won a BAFTA, so I got a selfie. Yeah, it was incredible. We exchanged. I took a photo on his phone. Yeah, his phone. The two of us, and from his phone, I then texted myself, going, "Okay, I'll marry you." Okay. My, and then I wrote back saying, um, it's a bit too soon. But, you know, a bit of exchanges. And then within three seconds, I'd invited him to go to Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso. What is Ouagadougou? It's a capital of Burkina Faso, oh, okay. Central African country. Why? Shows my lack of geographic knowledge. I don't know. I just don't have... <laughs> I, I just don't have the chat, you know. Okay. Um, so that's um, one time you're not really self-assured. I'm dreadful in that situation. I was on a plane and in the next seat, peace be upon him, was Taron Egerton. I mean, oh, the Elton John guy, mate, but yeah, yeah, and so much more besides. Heart be still. I was so kind of paralysed in the seat because I thought I can't go to the loo because what if he sees me staring at him? He'll think I'm weird. I mean, I had this whole kind of crushing internal subconscious nuclear meltdown, and of course didn't speak to him or say anything. Yeah, I'm useless if I fancy someone. Which so is very rare, but I don't really. You love chemical sense, you do lally. Right, do lally, exactly so, which is why I never have a conversation with any scaffolder. It won't go well. Oh, a scaffolder? Won't, no, <laughs> no point having a chat. So uh, anyone who's interested in you, they can just uh, get a, the building side helmet and all that. Hive's jacket? We're there. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier... <laughs> Uh, you grew up in the Jewish faith. So mm-hmm. as most religions are deeply homophobic, uh, no, I know certain parts of the Jewish religion are more accepting than others. They're more liberal. Not just more liberal. I, I need to correct you. I, okay. In Reform Judaism, oh. I mean, I, I this morning before I came uh, here, I was with the senior rabbi to Reform Judaism, um, okay. Laura Jana Klausner. And, uh, you know, she's performed hundreds, thousands of gay weddings. You know, the liberal and reformed Jewish faith has been inclusive for as long as they can be. It's not how I grew up. That, yeah. You're right to say there are certain parts of the Jewish faith or denominations or degrees of orthodoxy, perhaps, yeah. which still retain a very sad sense of homophobia. But even those are kind of changing a little bit. But I certainly grew up, yeah, in Orthodox yeah. Judaism. My parents, are, my mum is still an Orthodox Jew. And how did that faith impact on your relationship with your sexuality? Undoubtedly, where there's a religious doctrine, and that informs, as it did in my life, this toxic white noise of homophobia, what that means is that you should feel a sense of shame. It was part of that. So it was, you know, I can't honestly say that being gay formed any, at that point, you know, any kind of, um, I don't remember being at any sermon of any sort where that was especially brought up, maybe because it was beyond the pale. But certainly it was the expected thing that you would go and you would get married to a woman and all of that formed and was sort of framed in kind of the Orthodox Jewish faith. So that would have added to the total sum of shame, if you like. But again, you know, I suspect because of my mum's, I hate this word, but I'm just going to use it, hope that your listeners won't shrug and eye roll. My mum's journey, including her religious journey, has been such that she has kind of grown. And I suppose so, so has mine. I'm still very proudly Jewish. 
I'm now a member of Reform Judaism. Um, but my mum is uh, what's called conservative Judaism, or um, as we call it here, Mazorti. And in the Orthodox faith, there are increasing conversations about this, even now. Yesterday, I was at an event, and the rabbi who was the Orthodox rabbi at the synagogue I grew up in came up to me really proudly and said, Oh, um, Rob, uh, last week I did my first non-binary bar mitzvah. I mean, just... just Wow, One, wanted, incredible. wanted to have a discussion about it. Yeah. No, actually, some of the things he said, I thought, were not... No, they were... F he wanted to have a discussion about it. And the thing about Judaism, and I'm, of course, you know, it's so rich and complex, and there are so many different ways of practising it and denominations and stuff. So I'm speaking about, again, it's really important to anyone hearing this, my lived experience, that I am aware of. So United Synagogue, so Orthodox, to the various strands. Um, he said it's very much an ongoing conversation. Yeah. And I suppose to that extent, you know, uh, I have felt and continue to feel that it's more than possible. In fact, it's very possible. In fact, it's delighted in that I can be gay and be Jewish. And in the reform movement, that's not just celebrated, but they invite you to say what you can bring as opposed to what you can't bring. Uh, and I think that's been really important. You know, a few weeks ago, I went to uh, a marriage between a woman who I grew up with, whose parents were much older, and uh, he was the shomer. He was a very important person in this Orthodox Jewish community, and both her parents have died now, and she was marrying her wife, and it was at a um, registry office. And she reached out to me to come. And sadly, she um, has um, end-of-life cancer, so it could have been a really tragic event. And yeah. of course, it was a delight. It was a joyous moment when she married her wife. And the strangest thing happened as I looked around. All of these people who had been part of my childhood, Orthodox Jews, every one of them who had been friends with her parents, showed up at the registry office to delight, to celebrate in her marriage to another woman. I mean, that wouldn't have happened 20 or 30 years ago. But for them, we use this word, the derech eretz, the the duty and obligation to celebrate her joy was more important than anything doctrinal. It was a really powerful moment, actually. That's lovely to hear. Yeah. Things are changing slowly. Right. They, they were all there. They were all there. It was great. And during your time working as a barrister, did you have to come out at work or did you keep your sexuality hidden? No way. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I mean, I was by the time I started, I mean, I was a barrister at 21, sort of a year ahead, sort of ish at school. I mean, I, I, it was just never secret. I mean, I had, I, I, I was 21 and I was, yeah, I was. And, and I never had any, I never experienced a single, I mean, what a gift. I didn't experience from colleagues any kind of homophobia. And how about clients? Have you ever dealt with any cases? Certainly have. I can tell you about one. I should add, though, at work, because it's actually a really poignant story now. On or around the first year, or first few days, actually, I met this very austere barrister people would part from him in in terror as he walked through chambers. And his name is Malcolm Bishop, and he won't mind me sharing that story. Anyway, I found out he was gay. You, you, I mean, you never believe it. And he was with his partner, um, Anthony, for uh, 52 years. So they were together before things were legal. And he became a kind of mentor of mine, not a protector, just a mentor, and like a de facto dad. And in fact, um, very sadly, Anthony was killed um, a few weeks ago and a few weeks ago I spoke at Anthony's funeral but they oh, were together sorry for to hear that. it was awful um, and um, so I had that I had you know somebody like him this incredible um, role model in the form of Malcolm also I just 
I suppose I presented to the world that my sexuality was indifferent as the size of my big toe or as irrelevant as the size of it. Yes, I've experienced homophobia in different forms. So, I mean, three instances. I mean, as a barrister, as you know, um, as part of your obligation, you're not allowed to reject a case. It's called the cab rank rule, regardless of your political views, right? So I used to represent the National Front from time to time. Oh, really? Yeah, I once showed up for a client who said, oh, we're really glad you're here, Rob, because all they do is send me, they use the P word for, they send, all they do is send me yids and queers. No, so I went, oh, oh, you've no. um, So you're not allowed, are you able to respond to that or? Darling, look, here's the thing. Poor darlings. I mean, this family, who undoubtedly were being abused and were entitled to a defence because if they're not entitled to one, they're coming after you and me next, Right. My job and my delight, informed by my grandfather, who was a Holocaust survivor, was to stand between the individual and the state. But here's the thing, and I suppose it's what gifted me the capacity to be okay in public life as I am now, was that, you know, poor darlings, these were not happy humans. You know, anybody that's got residual capital at the end of the day, you know, emotional currency to spend on hate, just imagine that, sitting down and writing something unpleasant about somebody you don't know is not a happy human. You are going to be sitting up all night wearing a moo-moo and chain-smoking parliaments. And every person that's espoused hate, I mean real hate that I've ever come across, had to represent, never delighted in the world. They were consumed, eaten up, corroded by their own misery. Um, And that's always been my experience of them. So certainly I experienced that sort of homophobia. But otherwise, not really. And I used to represent, you know, Gang members, sort of, I think, very heterosexual gang members. In fact, Malcolm and I did a case together representing a very well-known gang. Both of us, of course, gay. I mean, the client couldn't care less. Um, He was very funny. There were moments when I would perhaps check in my campness. You know, when I'm seeing a very serious gangster and I'd be drinking my coffee and thinking, oh, pinky down, Rob. (laughs) But other than that, not at all. I am as I am, you know. You've got a great philosophy on dealing with homophobia, don't you, or Maybe. difficult people? Well, I suppose, I mean, give me another, another example in, in, in that respect. It's kind of you to say, I can forgive a great deal. I can forgive where somebody hasn't had the chance, the opportunity, the knowledge, the teaching, the learning, the hearing of meeting somebody from the LGBTQ plus community. All I ask of people is to hear and to give me that opportunity. So I did a case surrounded by police officers who had never met somebody like me, right? I mean, you could feel them looking for a corner in the room. I mean, frankly, if the world were flooded with piss, that would be the last, you know, person I'd shag. But they they did, you know, for them, it represented something frightening. A challenge to their masculinity, they'd never met a gay person, they'd certainly never ostensibly been under the auspices of one who had, as I did in the case I'm referring to, very considerable, serious, complex authority. And they spent a lot of the time in the early days trying to get me sacked. Poor darling. And then I said, fine, okay. let's see how many of them are prepared to come with me. Let me give them a month to show them what I could do. Never pander, never excuse, never apologise, never pretend, never hide. But let all I invite you to do is judge me on my professional terms. And for me to be open enough not to sling you in the bin because of your homophobia, but to give you a chance to hear to come on, sorry to use language again, the journey with me, Hmm. right? And that especially applied to this community of people that, as I say, had never had the gift of the experience of meeting 
somebody from the LGBTQ plus community. And eventually we became really close friends. And, you know, it was a learning opportunity for both of us, both that community and, and, and me. Um, and some of them were at my wedding and, you know, we've stayed friends nowadays and, you know, they're much more, they, they, they've, they're changed yeah. because, because of it. I think very often now it's very easy to be very angry, I understand why, and shouty, but never to look at the person who's espousing the homophobia, the hate, the transphobia. Now, where there's violence involved or threat, that's inexcusable. It's a criminal offence. We can deal with that. But sometimes where people are questioning or they hold on to various forms of homophobia, we always need to be mindful at first. Certainly I am. Where's that coming from? Have they had the chance to meet somebody who's gay? Do they know what they're talking about? Are they prepared to hear and to listen? And I suppose, you know, in my professional career, I've always, in that particular instance, got the gift of them coming along with me. And we used to laugh about it in there. Also, not being too serious. You know, Maya Angelou, hero of mine. Yeah. You know, she said you can't have any of the virtues. You can't practice, rather, any of... You can't practice any of the virtues consistently without courage. Now, of course, being courageous means being true to some extent. And of course you have to be kind of courageous about it. But she also says you have to be light and you have to laugh sometimes. And I think a lot of the time when we hear homophobia, because it's a core feature of our identity, it sits in cortex of our brain that's, that is our identity, it's our safety. Our immediate response is to want to aggressively defend ourselves. Yes. Yeah. And perhaps in many instances to feel angry and unsafe. Sometimes, sometimes responses go, I mean, in my case, to laugh at, you know, oh, poor darling, I mean, you don't mean that at all. It's just the instinctive reaction, isn't it, to be really defensive? Of course, and we should be sometimes. And I think very often the best answers to homophobia don't exist in logic, because where people are truly homophobic, transphobic, I think a lot of the time you're never going to win an argument through the power of logic, through numbers, through, you know, that, that, that's never going to persuade. Because, again, that homophobia very often sits in the core feature of their identity, be it a religious one or some other thing. So deeply entrenched. So deeply entrenched, exactly so. It's, it's in the same part of us that's gay. So whenever I'm advocating or trying to persuade them that perhaps their view is problematic or wrong or even dangerous, a useful story, a useful example, a persuasive narrative is, I think, the most um, helpful remedy. You know, when people talk to me about trans issues and their questioning of it, and about perhaps violence towards um, members of the trans community, I remember being at um, the Pride Awards and a young trans woman um, got up and spoke and she said, you know, on one day I received seven threats of violence coming to an coming to an event it was today on the train and this is what they were and you can share that story with somebody it's really persuasive especially if they have their own families and stuff yeah the trans community are going through an especially tough time sure they always have not a neat segue now we're going to move from homophobia and transphobia yeah and i want to ask you about strictly a few years back yeah Uh, so you Yes, you, you mean you came fifth on it. You did really well, didn't you? Quarterfinals. I know, what can I tell you? So I you got to Blackpool. I got to... Well, I always say this, I, I think the only porky I've ever told, nobody ever has ever conscripted me into saying anything I didn't want to on television, I mean, or, or ever, except that one time, the first day of um, Strictly, I found myself in sort of... Uh, 
in the glittery glare of the camera, surrounded by all of this stuff. And I found myself looking down the lens of the camera. I don't know why. I was repeating things were saying to me. And I said, my whole life, all I've ever wanted to do is to get to Blackpool. <laughs> I said, oh, my God, you know, it's obviously bollocks, isn't it? I mean, you know. But, yeah, it was great. I mean, free dancing lessons. What a delight. Yeah, Glitter, they could spray be quite pricey. And right. did you get to go on tour afterwards? Yeah, that? well, no, I did two days because I had to work. Okay. But I did uh, Manchester Evening News Arena. So I know. 15, 20,000 right. people. Right, it was great. There was yeah. no downside. Sorry to get political, but again, you know, what a learning opportunity that was. I, I, I've written about this, but I don't think I've really talked about it. One thing I was very aware of on Strictly, or I, I had an epiphany moment, was how gendered the experience of being in the public eye was and is. It was a really important learning. It was a really important learning, actually. So, In terms of the dance partners? A or? lot, right? I mean, it changed, I think, in the year or a couple of years afterwards a little bit with the Sean Walsh scandal. But here's the thing. I was a man. I was allowed... I mean, honestly, I sharp training and sometimes I go downstairs to Tesco's because I forget my kit and buy pyjama bottoms to dance in. Nobody commented ever on what I was wearing. There was no speculation about me having an affair with my dance partner. Well, obvs. People gave me full permission to delight in this joy of learning to dance. You know, and I was having this experience alongside women whose lives were being completely, I mean, scrutinised within an inch of what's tolerable, you know, for what they wore, for a look that they may have had with a partner that they weren't sexually interested in at all, you know, for for uh, 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 their breasts. They were sexualised in a way. Totally different. Whereas the blokes... Yeah. Just go delight in yourself. The scrutiny women are under in the media is unreal. It's hugely important. It's a massively important intersection for me. Uh, it's true now on Twitter. You know, I can put something vaguely um, political, always with a small p. And I met, by and in large, with kind of enthusiastic support, reinforcement sometimes. Um, the same tweet, to be sure, somebody else, especially if it's, well, the same tweet from a woman, is so likely to be met with misogyny and with violence. It's, a, it's really important, and I, I'm really mindful of that. That being said, yeah, Strict was great. Had the best time. I mean, the best time. And how do you feel No about, downside. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it looked like you had a great time. It's great. And how do you feel now about the same-sex couples on the show? So I changed on this, you know. I, it was really... Um, yeah, I read conflicting views. Well, it was, it was just, I think it's really important. That's one of the things that worries me a bit about hearing and listening to uh, friends and having the gift of uh, gold children. I think we're very quick to sling people in the bin. Mm. I keep using that word. You know, they'll espouse a view or experiment with an idea. It doesn't mean it sits in their identity, but it might feel wrong to you or even homophobic and... Uh, you don't agree with it. And so there's a kind of, it's met with not a degree of kindness or thought or hearing, but, you know, almost a sort of pseudo-violence. You know, you don't have a right to that view or it's it's wrong, so therefore let's just chuck you away a bit. Whereas we need to always give people the oxygen and opportunity to learn, to hear and to grow. That's That's a right. It's really important. And to also be mindful that people, including people's own parents, you know, are not blank slates. They come to who they are by virtue of their own parenting, their own social milieu and all of the various ingredients, much of which is toxic to being parents and other people. Now, I, I throat clear in that way because I grew on this issue. You know, I, I wrote a piece in, the, I think, Radio Times saying, well, 
didn't really make much difference. It's not going to make any difference. And then gradually, again, as I went to more LGBTQI events, I thought about my own childhood and I realised, actually, what am I talking about? Visibility really matters. You know, it makes a huge difference, especially in the parts of the country that we were talking about earlier, where... You know, there there isn't immediate access to LGBT communities or young people's groups, etc., yeah. where you do feel that cloak, that suffocating cloak of shame, which can lead, as we know, to eating disorders, self-harm and people taking their own lives. I mean, and just think about what Strictly does. I mean, there's no programme like it. it. It reaches into the living rooms of everybody, regardless of... Huge. huge. There's nothing like it on television. It galvanises communities, regardless of class or social background. And there isn't, like I say, there's nothing anymore like it on television, 10 million viewers. Yeah. So the visibility of um, two men or two women dancing with one another, that being delighted in, supported in somebody's living room, I think really does matter. I think it, it, it really does matter, especially as because... The other thing about Strictly, which is enormously powerful, is it's the one programme, the one event in the year where you can feel the British public conspiring joyously together to want people to do well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And one thing I would say about it, I mean, I've offered, I mean, I've offered to do a tango with Anton de Beck or preferably Gorka, but what can I tell you? Um, I would hope that when they do have the first same-sex couple, I mean, there's one this year, as you know, on Dancing with Ice with H from Steps. Oh, there is. I don't yeah. I hope that it's a gay person who is either the celebrity or the, celebrity uh, the, the or the dance partner. Yeah. I think that does matter. I hope they don't do something, you know, I mean, whether it's a gay woman or a gay man, I, I, I hope that, that, that they, they make that choice. I yeah. think that, that's quite important. But of course it matters. I don't think it's terribly political anymore. I just think it might, in a tiny way, make it a little bit safer for young people thinking about coming out to be gay. When it's in your living room and people are delighting in the dance and people are going, oh, no, I didn't like that move, as opposed to being troubled by the fact that they're same sex. I think all of those things slowly matter and change the kind of social conversation in an important way. And lastly... Uh, oh, I've got time, so you know. Are you sure? I thought, yeah, 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 I've got to quarter past one. Yeah, I really wanted to ask you, because yeah. obviously you're someone who's super smart and you're Let's someone, not go mad. Uh, oh, no, come on now. It's a, no, you know you are. Uh, you're someone of great wisdom. Let's not so, go mad. No. <laughs> so mm. what advice would you have for the people out there who are struggling with their sexuality now and who are feeling afraid to come out to their friends and family? What would That's your so best advice be for them? Wow. It's so difficult, uh, you know, to know. And there's four things I'd say. And the first one is that your uh, pain and worry about this is heard and it's real and it's felt. To know that's important, you know, you're not imagining it. To know that, here's the thing, ultimately it gets better. Now that's become slightly a glib phrase because it's yeah. not explained. What that means is when you come out, Eventually, you will find your community, your friends, your loved ones, the ones who matter. Because those who love you, that enrich your life, love you and will love you unconditionally. And you have to go through perhaps a lot of pain to come to that conclusion, but you will. That's what it gets better means. Finding your friends, finding your home, finding your community. And sometimes that might involve letting go of toxic relationships, including people that are very close to you. Thirdly, to be proud 
What does gay pride mean? Be proud. What that means is it's an important part of who you are. And you have a choice. You can drown in that or delight in it. Delight in it. And fourthly, to remember that life is a long marathon and not a hundred metre sprint. And when you're young, God, when you're young, days, everything feels like it's going to be forever. You know, that's the thing as I hear and learn from young people all the time. Everything feels like it's going to be permanent. You often drown in that sense of that feeling. But actually, you know, slowly but surely, things do change. Life turns on a dime, including finding comfort, joy and delight. And it's always worth remembering that no matter how bad you feel. You know, when I was working as a barrister, I was very depressed, seriously depressed, and I used that word on purpose. And then this series of random events, I didn't apply to be on television, just changed, oh, yeah. just changed on a, turned on a dime with one random meeting. You know, never feel, well, try to not feel bogged down in a full sense of permanence. It might feel awful now. You might meet, including people who purportedly love you, cruelty and unkindness but they may grow you need to give them the opportunity to grow and life does change and as long as you're prepared to let it it can and will get better that's great i would it would have been incredible if i'd heard that when i was younger that I'm would sorry have like, you meant didn't. so much you know and sadly those who are going to reject you just like people who are bullies or who have as i said earlier any residual energy for cruelty and unkindness please remember and know you can, even if you want, be smug in the knowledge, the truth that it is always, always about them, never about you. That's such great advice. I'm going to tattoo on oh. that, that on my brain <laughs> instead of my instinctive reaction and wanting to be defensive. Robert, thank you so much it's for your time joy. today. Um, it really was such a pleasure meeting you and chatting with you for the last hour or so. It's been a pleasure. Mm-hmm.